0: This is Ali Amagasi from Cloud Unfiltered coming back to you from KubeCon with our newest set of guests. I am pleased to introduce Nipendra Kari from Cloud Yuga and Kartik Gekwad from Oracle. Did I pronounce it right? Thank Are you. you. No. Oh, Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. You guys got my attention right away uh, with the title of your talk, and I have to imagine that you enjoyed that. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> who was responsible <laughs> for thinking of Nubernetes 101, but... Uh, Congratulations for the cleverness because it's it's definitely enticing.
1: Yeah, we were like, what would be a good talk title? And I was like, this is Kubernetes for new users. And like I said, we sat there for a while and we're like, new Kubernetes. It's like there you go. That might that might actually be a winning title. So <laughs> that, that's how we got <laughs> started. That's
0: it is. Yeah. And to help the audience understand why you guys would be the ones to give that talk, let me tell them that uh, that you guys have a course online, or at least at least one course, maybe more than one course. So you Kubernetes 101, it's on edX and lynda.com, and I understand it's had, had 250,000 views, mm-hmm. is that yeah. correct? Yeah. So you guys are the experts to some people, to people who are learning about this, who are trying to figure out, you know, how to get started with the whole thing. So is that is that how you guys got to a place where you were like, we could share we could share some of our experience here?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, basically, the um, what we started When we started thinking about this so um i have a bunch of courses on linkedin learning which is or lynda.com which is now linkedin learning uh and they cover kubernetes microservices and things like that and a lot of times you know folks will connect with me because it's become linkedin now they'll connect with me on linkedin and you know ask me a bunch of like a bunch of questions about kubernetes microservices uh things in that kind of realm and so it's been online for over a year and i've gotten a lot of like basic, very basic Kubernetes questions. And I was like, I wonder, um, cause there's a, it's not, Linda's not the only place with Kubernetes questions, you know, edX yep. um, also is. And I was like, I was wondering if other authors got the same questions. And I reached out to Nikhendra, and yep. we started a chat.
2: Yeah, yeah. So similar to Karthik, I got a lot of questions on Kubernetes uh, on the, from the channel of edX. And then I ran a meetup group in Bangalore on Docker, where I talk about Kubernetes as well. and so every time we do a meetup, we got a lot of questions in that way. Mm-hmm. The common question that we have, they like what we discuss in this particular talk earlier, which we did, and so we'll talk about today.
1: Yeah, we we did um, we did a list of questions in a in a Google Doc. And so Nipinder did his list and I did my list before we pitched it after a talk. And I think we had six out of ten questions that were the same. They were the same. So right. we're like, okay, well we, yeah, <laughs> this is pretty much, you know, what we're gonna kinda of put in into the talk. So
0: cool. Pete, didn't, before you go into the list of the top 10, Pete, I didn't mention your name at the beginning. We all know you're there lurking. Okay.
3: Yeah. yeah. I'm just lurking in the background in my underground nerd lair in upstate Michigan. No worries.
0: <laughs> but I know you had a really good question, I think, uh, for these guys before they got into it. You know, if, if you're per- approaching Kubernetes 101, well, I'll let you ask the question.
3: Well, yeah, just I, I, I'll ask the question again like we did during prep is like, what's your foundational assumption before you start Even being able to ask the question, do you assume they have zero knowledge of even Docker and containers, and they're coming from like an older school monolith world, or like where's the starting point in in terms of where you're thinking about these questions?
2: So for these questions, uh, we kind of kind of assume that people know a bit about Docker. Okay. Uh, But uh, we also talked about that uh, why what is the difference between containers and the VMs? So what containers and why I mean why not use VMs instead of containers? because we could do all the auto-scaling, application deployment in VMs, but then why we shouldn't use just VMs, we should, why we should do containers? So the first question we came across and then talked about that, the difference between the VMs and the containers. So we kind of assume that you kind of know about Docker, but just to set up platform correct, we talked about, we're talking about containers and why they give more benefits than just going with just VMs. Okay, fair enough.
0: So it's not an appropriate class for a marketer who wants to learn about Kubernetes. Well, um,
1: no, I wouldn't think so. I think um, basically, when from an Oracle standpoint, um, so I'm a cloud native evangelist over there, um, and I think you can kind of break it down to three kinds of users. Um, And so when I give a lot of talks, um, you know, I'll I'll either assume that people already know about Kubernetes and. Uh, at least the basics and then kind of you know talk about cloud native all the other different tooling and platforms and things like that there's another set of users that sort of understand containers uh and you know have kind of played with docker um and but might not know what kubernetes is which is kind of like the next step in that and then you have some folks who are the first at the very first step who might know you know stuff about devops uh but might not have um experience with containers at all so Depending on where users are, um, you know, you kind of have to either start with, you know, here's why you use a container or VM, or you know, you go into a little bit more detail of, uh, you know, here are here's specific things about like Kubernetes, etc. So you could totally take the class, and I think you'll get like benefit from that because um, it would it, be
0: like immersion learning. It'd be like going to another country where you don't speak. Oh yeah, really any of the language, but you're forced to learn, right? Because mm-hmm. if you want the butter, you're going to learn the word for butter. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and right. I've act- I've actually taken. Um, so, Nipendra's class, and so his um, his his tutorial or I guess class, um, it's about four hours long, and he goes into so much more detail uh, on all the different things on the Kubernetes space. Um, my class is two hours long, uh, and I cover it from like a general, high level uh, kind of perspective, uh, and don't go into as much detail. Uh, a lot of the feedback that I think both of us get is uh, people really like the content because it helps them kind of take that first step of at least knowing what Kubernetes is and you know, being able to speak the lingo,
0: uh, if you will. Great, great. So with that in mind then, um, why don't we go ahead and go into it? Well, I, I realize you just gave this presentation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're hot off the stage, and we appreciate you coming down to chat with us, but, but what are the top 10 questions that you get?
1: Sure. Um,
2: so the first question I think we talked about, we talked about first question about why containers? Why not just VMs? So the first question, we kind of took it, and then we kind of talked about, OK, people say, when we start for the first time, we say containers are lightweight VMs, which is good for analogy, but it's not true at all. <laughs> That's something good to kind of understand, but people kind of just say, OK, it's like a container. It's like a VM. OK. But you kind of understand, OK, it's technically they're different, but for a newbie, you can just say, OK, it's like very lightweight VMs. Uh, but we in the in the presentation, we kind of went to the diagram we talked about, okay, to run a VM, you need an hypervisor on which you deploy your guest OS and you put an application on top of that. But if you talk about containers, you take the application and directly put on the host OS. So that you don't have the overhead of the VMs, and uh, you can have the same hardware, run 100 applications instead of 10 VMs and then 10 applications. So because the end goal is
1: to run the application of the VMs. So the first question we take, and then? I think we went from that to um, we talked, I can't actually on-prem, remember. On-prem yeah, to? Right, on-prem versus cloud, because um, a lot of users are kind of struggling whether you know you do Kubernetes on-prem, uh, which is kind of one big arc. And then you have folks kind of you know doing Kubernetes on
0: cloud. Um, and what in, do you guys usually say? Do you recommend doing it on-prem? I mean, it certainly seems like with the announcements that are happening right now, mm-hmm. Amazon, Google, who else? Marathis even mm-hmm. announced uh, mm-hmm. Kubernetes on Prem this week. So, yeah,
1: I don't know if we have a specific recommendation per se, but um, the the important thing I think is there's um, there's a lot of companies that are not in cloud today, and you know are doing um, all of the work on premises. So, like, there's different ways that you can kind of go about installing Kubernetes and running Kubernetes on Prem. Um, did you have? thoughts on that? Uh, which means,
2: first of all, there's a more demand for on-prem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the first thing to understand. And then to learning perspective, I would say there are different tools are there to kind of you can do on the local and then learn. But with on-prem, what you're getting is you're getting more control of the data. You're getting more control of uh, who can use the cluster and so on. But at the same time, you're limiting yourself with the capacity planning and so on. But if you do hybrid environment where you can have both on-prem and cloud on the basically, you can say cloud on the ready state. So when you have your on-prem, you want to scale up, you can do a hybrid environment and go to the cloud and so on. So I think the combination of both is going to what is going to happen: that you have on-prem most of the time, but on the kind of say when you kind of got a lot of, kind of requests, a kind lot of demand, you just scale up on demand on the cloud and then again come back to on-prem. So you might just do a on-cloud for like non-critical path, mm-hmm. and then come back to the on-prem eventually
0: that makes sense i just it's funny because i feel like i don't know if you were hearing this as well pete but i mean for the longest time we, we had guests on the show actually telling us you know the whole on-prem thing is dead everything is going to the cloud lock stock and barrel and, mm-hmm. and uh and i don't know the announcements that have been coming out lately do not suggest that 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 you know it suggests that some stuff is going to have to stay on-prem pete yep.
3: the answer is always it depends right <laughs> I mean, you hear a lot of concern about latency. You hear a lot of concern perhaps misplaced about data security and and or the very real concern of uh, data privacy laws and being able to move them outside of borders and that kind of stuff. I mean, there, there's always reasons why you might want to do one versus the other, certainly.
1: Yeah, I feel like we are seeing from an Oracle standpoint because Oracle, um, we call ourselves a cloud company now, and we have a lot of... Um, Things that we are kind of pushing, you know, towards the cloud. A lot of our platforms, et etc. We're making them, um, you know, cloud cloud native. I guess, so that, that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, like, we, you know, we have our own uh, Kubernetes platform uh, managed service, and that was like one of the questions that we had next because a lot of users, um, the old way to do Kubernetes on cloud was to do like a self install, uh, and then now you have like all the different cloud providers uh, now I have like a managed Kubernetes service as well. So we kind of went through a little bit of um, you know what what that actually meant, Uh, and I think the big difference is that when you do like a self-managed install, you have control over all of the different pieces, even though it's in the cloud. So you can kind of like mix and match and do whatever you want. Uh, With respect to the managed side, you know we we kind of go into more details of um, you you kind of get a Kubernetes cluster or clusters that you want to run, and the cloud provider kind kind of handles all of the install process. Uh, and gives you what you need, so you're effectively in charge of your data plane, which is the nodes that actually run your cluster. Um, so we we talked through you know some of that, and I gave my analogy of the on or the uh, the self install is like He-Man uh, or Shira, where it's like you know He-Man and Shira, they're without without them the cartoon wouldn't make any sense because they were the the single uh, person that you know did everything. And on the other side, on the managed side, it's like Voltron, where you had the five lines that kind of come together and you you build on you build together as a team. So, you know, teamwork is dream work kind of thing.
2: Talked about that. Uh, to can start with, you might want to kind of go with the cloud for a new piece. You want to start with Kubernetes, you might want to just go with the, the cloud one. So you kind of manage services, you kind of get ready, get things going on, and then you kind of once you become comfortable with Kubernetes to run some applications and deploy them, then you go to manage or kind of a, say the other way where you kind of deploy on your own and so on. So
0: you're kind of using the you're kind of talking about using the cloud as almost a training ground mm-hmm. using the public yeah. Maybe
2: you can see a mini queue for a single per single node purpose, but if you really want to have an application that just kind of runs on the cloud, you can scale up and check things how everything is going on in the real world scenario. Once right. you're comfortable with that, then you can kind of do it on your own.
0: Pete, I heard you trying to jump in there.
3: Well yeah, I was just gonna say I mean I think Kartik just like has a good he had just made himself a candidate for best pop culture reference in the history <laughs> of this podcast. I mean we, we did have somebody cite some Britney Spears lyrics last month. So it's like <laughs> nice. she revoltron. That's that's right up there, man. <laughs> <laughs> it was Spice Girls lyrics, man. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought it was Br- Ah, Now I'm kicking myself. <laughs> it
0: was it was Ed Warnicki who's presenting at this event, actually. And oh, he wow. uh he yeah quoted the Spice Girls in his interview. You know, nice. to,
3: a, to a man my age, there's not much difference between Spice Girls and Britney Spears <laughs> <in my laughs> defense, but
0: apparently to Ed there is. So yeah,
3: I'm sure it's there is. But, but I digress. So that that that's the first two. What's what's the third third best question or the third top question you guys? Get? I
0: think you already gave me like
1: three or so four. Yeah,
3: so you've given us
1: three. All right. Yeah, uh, we went through. So let's see. We also talked about the difference the differences between Kubernetes. And then you know what that means versus serverless, versus um, service mesh. Service mesh. Yeah. So those three kind of uh, they're all three individual or different things, and so people end up getting confused on which one to pick, whether to pick Kubernetes or whether to pick serverless. So we had some recommendations on you know how to go about uh, some of those um, platforms, basically. So Kubernetes, like most folks, kind of like to pick that if they're they have large teams and. If they want to kind of manage their own uh, infrastructure, et cetera, uh, they end up picking Kubernetes versus serverless. A lot of dev teams end up picking it up because they actually don't have to manage anything uh, other than the code that they're trying to deploy. And then service mesh kind of sits in between those two and kind of straddles the fence a little bit where you end up uh, using a service mesh if you use Kubernetes. And it helps you kind of um, not have to worry about a lot of the concerns that Kubernetes brings in to begin with but allows you to get like a higher level
0: abstraction makes sense pete any comments Uh, on the serverless
3: no i'll let that one go for now because that's you know as we all know that's like a 20 minute tangent that i could take (laughs) i'm curious have you started to get questions it's only been a couple of weeks since the announcement have you started to get the question about aws firecracker in that same line of in that same line of service mesh kubernetes and kind of on prem cloud um because they they've they kind of portray it as a a different a different unit of measure kind of between a container and a vm that you get some of the benefits of vms with a fully baked kernel but you you know fully isolated kernel but you get the the startup you know the the startup time in milliseconds that you might have with a container. Do you guys get much of that yet or is it still too early because it's only been a couple of weeks? So questions as of now I haven't got it for that but our
2: understanding is that I think FireTracker seems to be a technology there, very kind of uh, kind of putting down a one container in a one VM, and yeah. those VMs are very lightweight, so that you can make it run very fast and de- destroy it. Because if you take like, if you look at how do you deploy an applic- uh, a VM, it might take like for example one minute, one or two minutes to start a VM, but right. a container takes a few m- seconds or maybe less than a second. So if you can kind of bring down that uh, VM starting and stopping time, which is less than a second that's going to be very beneficial for all of us. And then we can say, OK, this is like complete isolation. Like, there's no thing that, OK, within a container sharing something, but within the VM is like complete isolation. So people get like an all of enterprises kind of have full confidence to go towards the technology and so on.
3: You know, and I thought it was interesting that that specific use case that you're talking about, where it's one container per VM, how, how nicely that it kind of integrates with the OpenStack Kata idea, which is very much that same Yes, kind of concept That's right exactly there. what I
0: was gonna say. I was gonna say, am I misunderstanding this or does it sound like the OpenStack Kata project?
3: Yeah. It no. is, only it's like Andy Jassy saying it instead of OpenStack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is this a different name? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it's really interesting how like all the worlds are kind of blending together a little bit. because um, yeah. you know, there's there's this big conversation on Twitter right now where is like Kubernetes becoming a lot like OpenStack because um, there's a lot of projects in OpenStack. There's also a lot of projects in CNCF surrounding Kubernetes. Uh, you know, we're talking about Fargate, which is kind of like Kata Containers, which you know, it's like very similar in some ways on the richness of both ecosystems. So there's like some talk on like, hey, um, you know, how can we how can we, you know, make sure that we don't make some of the same mistakes we made in OpenStack and you know, keep Kubernetes uh, in a way that's still simple, easy to understand. So um, we're, you know, uh, going ahead and going forward, basically.
2: So same line, I think what Kubernetes has done nicely is that they are kind of, I mean, Kubernetes community has taken the core as very stable, and mm-hmm. then they've given up, up the thing called CRDs, customers' definition by which you can extend the Kubernetes. So Kubernetes core remains very stable and very kind of, I say, very small in the footprint. And then you can add these CRDs and build your own stuff on top of that. That way, I think Kubernetes does a good job there as a community.
1: Yeah. And also, just from like a plain documentation standpoint, like installing OpenStack is actually really hard, uh, or the different components in there. But um, I haven't had issues. Like I've had to install Prometheus and Jaeger and whatnot, and like the docs are actually really good. And I think a lot of people pay a lot more attentions to the Kubernetes docs uh, or the CNCF docs in general. So it helps us actually you know, build forward, and like fail forward, and not just say, hey, I have this cool project. And you try and like actually use it, and you have no idea how to use that.
0: All right. So that was a great question. It was uh, Kubernetes versus serverless versus mm-hmm. uh, what was the third one? I Service to... Mesh. Service Mesh, Mesh. <laughs> yes. And it wound up into a firecracker discussion. Finally. Yep.
1: <laughs> and then we and then, talked about deployment.
2: Yeah, so then because of once you have a cluster up and running, then how do you deploy the application on top of Kubernetes cluster? There are different ways of doing it right now. People just do with the YAML files. The YAML files kind of become too difficult to manage as you kind of uh, scale up. So if you have uh, three environment, dev, queue and operations, and then if you build a YAML file for each environment, that's a like lot of YAML files to maintain. So what we are doing right now is we're kind of uh, decoupling the uh, the configuration from the YAML files and putting them to a, like a config file. And then let the ML file be only one, one set of ML files for all three environments. Mm-hmm. And we pass different configuration files as you kind of go along. That's one approach where you have a tools like Helm, Ksonnet, and uh, Customize. And then one approach is you take just uh, give a source code to the, the tool like Scaffold and, and Draft, and they'll kind of build the Helm chart or the application on its so own and deploy it all together. So you just go to source code and then deploy the application on the Kubernetes cluster That's like scaffold and the draft there.
1: I actually have a question for you on that. And I was thinking about it when you were talking about it uh, on stage. So we talked about Helm case on it and customize as like the different ways that people deploy it. What's the most popular way? Is it Helm?
2: As of now, Helm seems to be the most popular one. OK. Part I have seen in my real scenario where I have go to the customer side, they didn't case on it, Mm -hmm. which is much easier to kind of learn and then do it. So interesting.
1: So case on, it's easy to pick up, but like community attractions have been more at home.
3: Yes. (laughs) that's true. To me, this topic, this is the most important one to nail. I think for, for noobs in this space, because when you come to this for the first time, I mean, and three years ago, I had a decision to make. Do I spend some time working on, on learning Kubernetes? And kind of that was what a lot of people were doing, or do I spend some time going and spent and, and play around with Lambda? And I, I chose the latter and then work forced me to do the former later anyway. So I'm I'm like eighteen months in on Kubernetes myself. And the, and the thing that that confused me about it when I first started to get into it was like, Really? You want me to like bite off a whole bunch of my time and my application architecture and the way that I spend my application and you guys haven't even figured out application deployments yet? Like mm-hmm. just in terms of getting credibility from the existing uh, monolithic application set, I think this one is really important to nail and to make it as simple as possible. I mean, I find Helm great to work with once you can get the Tiller, once you can get Tiller running the way that you want it to. But I, I think this one's really important just to, to, to flatten the lower cur- learning curve and have just have one answer. Because right now there's like, as we were just discussing, there's like six answers and and that's, that's, I think, one of the early confusing points and why it appears on your list, right, is I shouldn't I shouldn't have to go investigate six things now and go figure out which one is right for me when I'm new to this, just like, tell me which one it is and I'll go use it.
0: That's what I like about your answer, though. This is what most people are using, Helm, and this is the one that's actually easiest to use. What was that one?
1: Yeah. Had, yeah. The sad part is I think that because Kubernetes is very, or uh, Cloud Native is very community-driven, um, every arc we or every new innovation in the space there's always going to be a lot of vendors initially because everyone's going to try and you know uh, pick off that pick off that piece we're seeing that a lot in the service mesh space right now where you know you have different kind of tools and different kind of vendors that you can kind of use um, to solve you know the idea of the service mesh and you know back i think last year at this time we were kind of fighting over how to actually deploy applications because i remember coming to kubecon and they were like, talking about case on it and I actually thought case on it would be, case on it looked really simple and it would be the thing that would win at the end. But Helm drew a lot more community because they ended up, you know, they have like Helm charts on GitHub. So it's like easier to find to so just kind of take the charts and, you know, run with it. But I think every time we come to a crossroad, we'll have a lot of options up front, And then eventually maybe, you know, six months or a year down the line, We'll end up picking something that most people. End up Same happened on. with their
2: orchestration, right? Docker yep. Swarm, Kubernetes, and whatnot. So now you know the winner, right? Mm-hmm. So with the open source community eventually the best would win. So
1: yeah. And then we came to probably the most important question that we get a lot, which is around services.
2: Yep. So once you have an application running on the cluster, how do you expose it to the external world? So we talked about different ways of exposing the application to external world, uh, so that uh, people can access the application. From the external world and so on. So we talked about something uh, called Q proxy, which runs on all of your nodes. QProxy proxy is a component which allows the external app- access to app- app- other applications. So you hit a node, and that application comes or application get access from your node. That's the QProxy proxy job. The so QProxy proxy sits on on your node and which communicates from the external world of the internet and to the application. So we talked about that. And then we started with this type called cluster IP, which is internal only. So you deploy an application, and it's available within the cluster. So for example, database application, there will be a cluster IP, because it's only cluster. But when you go to like a front-end application which access the application, that database, it would be the external world. So you kind of expose the node port type. With the node port, you kind of expose a node on all of the ports. And from that, your application can come inside the cluster. The thing with the node port is, uh, for example, you want to give to your customer to access the application, you, don't, you give them a node IP and a node port. A customer is bound to a given node and node IP on the port number. And if that node goes down, the application just dies. Though it's running somewhere else, but you can't access it. So, node port is one way of exposing the application to the external world. The next thing we talk about is something called type load balancer, where we kind of ask the cloud provider, or we can build our own load balancer which kind of load balances among our nodes. So if I have a cluster of three nodes, my load balancer sits on top of that, and load balances my request between these nodes. And from there, I'll come to the node port and then do the, my service. So that's one way of doing it. Now, if you have a node, if you use node or the load balancer type, in that case, you need to use a load balancer per service. So if you have 10 services, you're creating 10 load balancers. It's like more expensive, not scalable. So then we came up to talk about ingress controllers. So, we deploy an ingress controller, a kind of an um, entity, which kind of runs as load balancer. And all of our access comes from the load balancer, that ingress type load balancer. So, all of our requests come to that ingress, and from there, we'll go to the the services. For example, if you have a site named blue.example.com and green.example.com, all of them reach to the same load balancer or the ingress load balancer, and from there, they'll come to the services inside. So that way, you kind of save money, and you're more scalable in that way. And my last point to talk about, there are these ingress type from the cloud providers like AWS, ALB, NLB, and so on, which also allows you to uh, access of the application. So not about those as well. It's a brief about NLB, ALB, and Google Cloud uh, load balancer as well.
3: I completely agree this is the hardest one because it's when we talked about Kartik, You talked about like defaults, right? I mean, the one I'm w- you were thinking of, I, the one adjacent I was thinking of was like the CNI, the networking, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, by default you get Calico and that works great inside the cluster. And when you're just getting started, that's all you need, right? You just, right. You just need some basic communication. When you scale to something larger, you you need something else. But when you're just getting started, and, and uh, Nipender, that what you were just talking about when you're just getting started, you can get you can use like node ports and I personally find the node ports a little bit limiting when like, all I want to do when I start is like deploy, go deploy some little web service that has some simple cruddle operations against like a, a dynamo DB or something really simple like that. Mm-hmm. And when, when when you have to figure out enough about how the ingresses work, even just to change it to a load balancer. And then depending upon where my cluster is, if I don't necessarily get an external IP address and I might have to learn about port mappings and, like that part of it, that part of the learning curve is I think pretty sticky for a lot of people.
2: That's true, that I agree with that completely. So, I mean, that's why the, I mean, if you're learning that Minikube helps you, you, just say Minikube service, service team. it just
3: kind of gives yeah, you the access. Minikube definitely helps. But then yeah. if you, well, if you're like me and you're running a MacBook Air and Minikube chokes on it and you gotta go spin up a, a cluster either on your favorite public cloud or you, you know, you find something else internally, then, uh, you know, aside from ordering a bigger laptop, I guess, you know, you, <laughs> <laughs> you have to start to get into some of these these other issues with the ingress. Yeah, that's true. That's true.
1: Yeah, the, the NodePort thing is like, I think it's the simplest kind. So when you're trying to do like a quick and dirty demo, most people end up using NodePort. The load balancer is the one that cloud provi- providers love because, you know, they can charge you for a load balancer. Yeah. Um, and ingress is kind of like in between in there where you still have a load balancer in front, but... You're kind of routing traffic through a specific way uh, to your applications.
3: Sure, and then those simple things, as I think you guys are talking about, th- those don't scale for production use the way in the same way that like Calico doesn't necessarily scale for production use for network, or maybe you know just the the plain YAML files don't scale for application deployment. And you got to so like there's the there's the okay, I just want to learn something basic, and then there's the yep. okay, now all of a sudden I gotta I gotta learn how to do this for thirty applications or 30 services at the same time. So there's there's kind of almost two learning curves, right? There's the hello world kind of stuff or the or the guestbook kind of stuff, and there's the, okay, now I have something real I want to deploy in, in production kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Totally, totally agree.
0: I think that's six, right? Or seven? Or? Yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> I don't remember anymore. <laughs> so,
0: all <laughs> right, we have a couple
3: more. Yeah. Um, well, we Ali, talked about- Ali's timekeeper can tell us how many we have time left for. <laughs>
0: Well, we're just, we got a little bit more time. We, I, I want to get right. through the list, so. Okay. <laughs> will we'll talk through, like, the,
1: the next one we kind of talked through, like, authentication, authorization, and basically we gave, like, the best practices for, you know, what people typically do to authenticate, uh, and then, you know, from an authorization perspective, there's uh, the initial way used to be uh, application or uh, attribute-based attribute A, I C. I don't forget what the A, C part is, but attribute-based attribute based and role-based access control, so RBAC, and RBAC has kind of become the default. So our recommendation on that was to you know use authorization, uh, and use RBAC for authorization. And then we kind of talked through a little bit on uh, when you have large teams using Kubernetes, like what are some of the best practices that people use? We went went into some details on you know using namespaces for uh, if you have like dev, test, production clusters, you can use you know different namespaces for dev, test, production, nice. uh, or you know, in the managed uh, Kubernetes world, people just end up creating new clusters for their dev test and production, and treat treat clusters kind of like cattle versus uh, versus pets, where you have like everything you know running on your know, single cluster. And we went on to talk about secrets and cert management, et cetera. And basically, the point here that we really wanted to uh nailed down was that
0: what's the question you get before you answer it did they do people say what are secrets what is it like how are we supposed to deal with secrets what are you know Mm -hmm.
1: specifically like the things that we've heard is like how so i have a database username password and i'm using kubernetes how do i bring that in do i just pass it to the application and what are best practices associated with that and uh kubernetes actually has a construct called secrets that you know you should be using for anytime you have sensitive information uh, that's something that, that you should be uh, using to store that data because it actually encodes it behind the scenes. So that's the 101 level. If you want to do the two on level, there's also a new like secrets encryption provider uh, config where you can actually encrypt it in a specific way. So a lot of you know people are using the encryption provider to strongly encrypt the secrets that are being passed in. So you know it's not just encoded, it's actually encrypted. So that's kind of where the community is going towards. And then we moved on to how to store question. data, yeah. <laughs> which was our last question, on uh, in our talk.
2: Yeah, so so of course, when you put any application on the on the containers on the cloud or the Kubernetes, you want to have the data what you put like a, whatever you put in the data it should be it should exist, right? It shouldn't happen that pod dies and comes again, it doesn't find the data what is stored previously, right? So for that we use our volume, so we can attach an external volume to the our pods. And each container in the pod can decide where they want to mount that particular volume endpoint. So for example, I would say there's a volume I have from uh, NFS and a container one in the pod can sell model slash TMP and then other guys will sell model slash 70 and so on. So each guy can decide where they want to put the volume in. Uh, then there's a construct of other kind of ways of uh, uh, creating the volume for your pod. So one is uh, the different drivers are there, like empty dir, host path and so on. Then you have drivers for uh, the cloud providers like AWS, Azure, or Google Cloud and whatnot. What happens in those cases, if you kind of, uh, what you could do is you can create a volume uh, on the cloud provider and then assign it to your application or the part there. Now, this can be done by the developer. A developer would say, I'll go to the Google Cloud and create a storage there and use it. But a developer would not like it. The developer would say, I just want a storage. Don't let me go to the cloud and do that stuff. And similarly, the ops guy would say, why would I give my access or the cloud access to my developer? It shouldn't happen like that. Way. So
0: nobody wants to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's all <laughs> one of
2: that. So what you do is you kind of have something called as a persistent volume claim, kind of a intermediate construct. So where a developer would say, I want a storage of 10 GB. And that's what a developer puts in the PVC, or persistent volume claim. And that request will go to my persistent volume, which can either be statically assigned. So my ops guy can statically assign the persistent volume. And then, which I can attach to it, or my ops person can say, I'm going to do something called storage class, which is dynamic volume creation. So, I would say, okay, uh, like a storage class, for example, I would say standard as a name, and the provisioner can be AWS EBS. So, when a developer says, I want to of 10 GB as a PVC, that request goes to my storage class called standard or whatever name I've given there. And then I'll figure out what my provisioner is, and I'll go to the AWS and create the 10 GB storage, whatever you want on dynamic as dynamically. So I don't have to kind of create the volumes ahead of time, I'll create as a request comes in. Mm-hmm. That way I could kind of attach the volume to our pods dynamically. And then once we have these things, we can have something called storage stateful set. The stateful set, you can kind of uh, define the stateful application like, for example, you want to create a cluster of MySQL within Kubernetes. And that's when you can use stateful set Object type along with these volumes, coming from the storage vendor you have whatever, and then put them together in, and then deploy the application which gets stateful eventually. So yeah, I can kind of manage the stateful
3: application in Kubernetes. Okay, I got a question for you guys on that one. What, what do you think? So, so you need persistent volumes because you you have to keep state somewhere, somewhere right. reliable right? Because you're you're you have to treat your you have to treat your individual container slash pods as being ephemeral. And you you might, you know, as you do, as you do rolling updates to them, the existing pods that are taking transactions might have to get swapped out for old ones, you got So you can't keep state in them, you got to keep it somewhere else. So what about this? I mean, it's there seems to be a a growing sentiment of instead of messing around with persistent volumes and, and dealing with all the management overhead of all the stuff that you just described, what if you just stand up an object store, and use secrets for your access keys to that object store, and then you keep, so that becomes your disk instead of the persistent volumes.
2: Yeah, that's it, you can you can do that, but you are gonna do it all the time. For example, if I want to create a cluster of MySQL, I cannot have them on the storage, right? So I need to give a real volume to my MySQL binary, right? Mm-hmm. Then I'm gonna work out. I cannot do object storage for that. But sure. for example- There's use it,
3: cases where you absolutely need it, I'm just suggesting you don't need it for every use case. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. for yeah, sure. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. You can do that in that way, or you could just use like an RDS or the service from cloud providers. For example, if you need an Postgres, just use the cloud service for Postgres. That's all. Right.
1: I mean, people people might think I'm old school, but when I people ask me for, hey, should I be using? Uh, we have operators from MySQL and databases and <clears throat> everything today, and I'm still like a fan of using like the uh, managed service for it. So, like using an RDS, for example.
3: Yeah. OK, cool.
0: Well, that was a great walk through your your top 10 questions. Thank you very much for doing that. If I was listening and I said, you know what? I understood a lot of that. I could use some more time on other parts of it. Um, Where should they go to find your courses?
2: Yeah, so for, of course, you can go to edX.org, and you can take a Kubernetes course. And of course, if you're completely new to cloud, for example, I mean, You haven't heard about cloud, what's not. So there's another course on edX of mine, which is called Introduction to Cloud Info Technologies, which kind of covers from ISPASS and up to DevOps and servers and everything. It gives you a brief intro of every one of them, and there's a video attached to it. So you can watch a demo of each one of that. If you can take that course, she'll give you like all the jargons of the cloud world so that you can talk and then speak in the same language. And then as a part of Clouduga, we have built a SaaS training platform. And where you can kind of go and find out our free courses, and if you're interested, you can take a look at our all the the Docker and the Kubernetes courses. It will take you to kind of clear the CK and CKD exams.
0: Awesome. Anything to add to that about uh, where we would find find courses that, that you're featured in? Um, yeah,
1: um, I so a lot of my courses are on LinkedIn Learning. So I have a Kubernetes the learning Kubernetes course, which is the most popular one. I also have a course on learning microservices with Kubernetes. Uh, a couple of courses on you know, the basics of Cloud Native uh, Computing Foundation, like a walkthrough of the different platforms on there, and as well as uh, a course on Lean and Agile, so uh, with with respect to DevOps. So I came from more of a developer in DevOps background, and so I did a course with uh, some of the folks from Austin, Texas, Ernest Muller and James Wickett on, you know, Lean and DevOps and whatnot. And so that's kind of where, um, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn LinkedIn Learning uh, is where you'll find a lot of the stuff.
0: Great. And what I'll do is go ahead and include uh, the URLs to everything in the uh, notes for the show so that anybody who wants to follow up has a number of ways to find it. But that's it for me. I don't have any further questions. Pete, how about you? No, I'm good. We are over time, but I let it roll because I was enjoying what you guys were saying, and I was certainly learning, and I hope our audience was learning. So thank you for sharing with us today. I really, really appreciate you being on the show. Sure.
1: Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Bye, Pete.
3: Bye.